We have surpassed 1,800 fighter profiles and 45 signed up members for the MMA Fight Archive since the beginning of May. And shout out to everybody that's been supporting the project. Over the next couple of weeks, we got Cage Warriors 158 going down, Bellator versus Risen 2, and not to mention the start of the Contender Series season, which goes down August 8th. Uh, so it's in a few weeks, and we're going to start posting profiles for all those fighters coming up. And that's where you'll really see the MMA Fight Archive shine, where you'll be able to get access to regional tape for a lot of these fighters that you may never have heard before so that you can get proper predictions proper breakdowns and proper analysis for yourself make sure you check out the mma fight archive link in the description below gets you a seven day free trial i promise you won't hate it you'll enjoy it especially if you do your own research it will save you a boatload of time and ensure that you're seeing as much footage out there as possible for all these upcoming opponents and not to mention there is a key commentator on the contender series who uses this platform and i promise you i know they enjoy it very much which is why i've been working with them for the last couple years so make sure you guys check it out mma fight archive link in the description below let's get right into the episode Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC 291, which is headlined by a BMF title fight between Dustin Poirier and Justin Gaethje, a rematch of a match that took place back in 2018 and absolutely delivered that night. That night, Dustin Poirier was victorious, I believe, in the fourth round of their matchup, where he knocked out Justin Gaethje in the opening minute of that uh, of that round. Very, very fun fight. Not to mention in the co-main event, we got a high-stakes, light heavyweight matchup between Jan Blachowicz and Alex Pereira. It got a whole lot more interesting the last couple weeks, especially considering that Jamal Hill was forced to relinquish his undefeated or undisputed light heavyweight title due to an injury that he suffered. And now it's safe to say that one of these fighters this weekend could find themselves in a vacant light heavyweight title fight uh, if they end up getting their hand raised this weekend. A bunch of other great fights sprinkled out throughout the card, not to mention a striker's delight between Wonderboy Thompson and Michelle Pereira. I know people have been clamoring for that matchup ever since Pereira stepped foot in the octagon, and we finally get it this weekend. I can't wait to see how it turns out. And always fan favorite, we got Kevin Holland taking center stage as well as he takes on grappler Michael Chiesa. Before we get into the predictions and all that stuff, let's quickly go over last week's predictions, which was pretty damn good. The lock of the night comes through relatively easily, or at least there was a little bit of adversity, I will say. But Joel Alvarez comes through for us, and he cashes for us. Not to mention on the regional scene as well, we go 2-0 with our lock of the night predictions there as well. And we stretch our lock of the night prediction record for the year to 61-17 and for a 78% hit rate. That's what I'm talking about, folks. We hit those lock of the night predictions as often as we can so that you can guarantee, or at least rely on your boy to go out there and whether you play it straight throw into a parlay you'll know that like more often not will hit and as of right now 78 percent on the year not too bad the dog of the night not too bad either mick parkin comes through relatively easily i was surprised to see the amount of people on jamog pogues that night and 
Don't get me wrong. Jamal Pogues is a guy that I've trusted as a lock of the night prediction earlier this year against Ross Parisian. But I know that Mick Parkin is the truth. And he showed it that night with a very disciplined striking game. I thought he'd be able to get Pogues out of there later. But he stuck to his guns, stayed disciplined, and completely outworked him over three rounds and won that fight fairly easily. On the regional scene, we go one and one on our dog of the night prediction as the LFA dog comes through for us. I believe it was the first or second fight of the night, plus 185 dog, plus 300 inside the distance as well. You're welcome. That pushes our dog of the night prediction to 35 and 44 for a 44% hit rate. Again, doing pretty well over there as well. And you can see the exact uh, uh, results of the dog of the night prediction on the dog of the night candidate top three video that I drop on Wednesdays of fight week. So make sure you guys go check that out. So solid run for us thus far. We got cage warriors going down this weekend. You'll only be able to find those breakdowns on the Patreon on check the link in the description below again don't get it mixed up with the mma fight archive which is the direct link to past fights for the fighter database but it's my own personal patreon page where those guys get first dibs on predictions and the track plays that i have for you guys as well so make sure you guys check that out bellator goes down this week as well it's going to be a five fight card there's a risen card then there's a bellator versus risen card i'm only going to be covering the bellator card and don't worry there will be a podcast for that dropping on wednesday that you guys can rely on and get your information from me there as well uh, last thing I want to plug, Godzilla wins. Shout out to those guys over there giving me a platform to drop articles on a weekly basis. Wednesdays, I drop my main event prediction article where you can find out which my what I think is the best spot that you can take action on for the main event. And then on Thursdays, we drop the three best money line uh, spots as well for the card. And that's where you guys can find my three best money line spots. So shout out to Godzilla wins. Check the link in the description below on Wednesdays and Thursdays to see those links or just go straight up to Godzilla wins and check out all the other fun and uh, solid cappers that they have on there giving you guys uh, picks predictions and analysis on all the sports available to you guys all right that's a wrap on all the plugs let's get right into the episode Kicking things off in the flyweight division, we got 11 and 5 Miranda Maverick going up against 12 and 4 Priscilla Cachoeira. Starting off on the Miranda Maverick side, she's actually coming off of a loss to Jasmine Jazdavicius back at UFC 289 where she came in as a pretty decent favorite. I think a lot of people were overlooking Jazdavicius, especially considering her loss to Natalia Silva, even though she rebounded against Gabriela Fernandez. But Maverick has been one of those fighters that's been loved by the betting public, which is always why she's always at a chalky line. And, you know, more often than not, for good reason. She's 26 years old. She's developing at a steady rate. She has strong grappling, strong wrestling, especially when she's able to assert that top position against her opponents. She's very physical and very strong, like I said, and her striking game is slowly coming along as well. I love the work that she's getting over there in Colorado, especially when she moved from, I believe it was Oklahoma, where she originally trained out of. But she's getting good time in with great training partners in Colorado and also very good coaches as well. I'm not ready to write her off yet, especially considering she's two and three over her last five fights. But I still think that she has great potential and she's still young enough to learn from these experiences and come back stronger. Her opponent this weekend, Priscilla Cachoeira, is on a two-fight winning streak and say what you want about the Jiyun Kim fight where she got outstruck by 68 significant strikes but still managed to win that fight. She showed off her big knockout power in her last bout against Ariane Lipsky. 
Unfortunately, Priscilla has had some troubles getting back inside the cage since that Lipsky fight actually took back took place back in August of 2022, and she's had a couple fallouts. One was due to a botched weight cut from her opponent, Sajar Eubanks, and then most recently, she had a botched weight cut of her own, which forced her out of her fight. She's been training down at MMA Masters for a couple of training camps now, and I'm curious to see how much more improvement she's been making, but I think by and large, she'll likely be that big knockout power uh, puncher more than anything in uh, her upcoming fights. She has some decent potential, but she's still 34 years old. We need to keep that into consideration. But with a new training camp, I believe that we'll see new wrinkles in her game. I just don't know if it'll be enough to take her to that next level. Now, even with Miranda Maverick hovering around that minus 300 to minus 350 range already, I just don't know where the public's going to go. Like, are they going to start to say that she's washed now? You know what I mean? We saw her lose to Jazz Davisia. She's 2-3 and three in her last five fights. Maybe she's not as good as we originally thought. Or are they going to be like, hey, this is a home run matchup for her. This is a layup matchup for her, which is what I completely believe it is. Cachoeira, don't get me wrong, heavy hitter. She's making some good improvements over there at MMA Masters, but I just don't think she's ready for the overall game of Maverick. Maverick is very difficult to deal with when she gets that top position, and I believe she'll be able to get that, you know, maybe not easily here, but within the first two or three minutes, she should be able to get the takedown, and from there, do solid work from on top, eventually opening up a finishing opportunity for herself, which I think she ends up coming through on. Whether it's submission, whether it's TKO, I think just taking the straight up inside the distance on Maverick is not that bad, or even just playing her straight, I think she's worth the juice, I really do. I think she's a solid spot this weekend. I'm taking Miranda Maverick to win inside the distance. Under two and a half, not a bad spot either. Next up, we have a banger in the welterweight division as we got 11-5 Matthew Semmelsberger going up against 8-1 Uro Schmedic. Starting off on the Semmelsberger side, he's coming off of a loss to Mr. Jeremiah Wells. That was a fight where he recorded two knockdowns, but still got taken down six times and controlled for over 11 minutes that night. That seems to be the weakness in Semmelsberger's game, which is when people are able to take him to the ground and grind him out. Even in fights that he ended up winning, he was able to get the victory over AJ Fletcher in a fight that he got taken down four times. But it's clear that he needs to improve the grappling aspect of his game if he hopes to break through to the next level. But he has been one of the more active fighters in the UFC during this COVID era as he walks into his ninth UFC fight now since he made his debut back in August of 2020. Even more impressive than how active he's been staying is the amount of knockdowns he's been able to record in those fights. In his eight UFC fights, he's recorded nine knockdowns. He's had a knockdown in every single fight except two fights. It's crazy how much power this guy has. And I originally thought he was just mainly a guy that got by on his physical traits, which is why he made it to the UFC. But the technical aspects of his game are really starting to round out, which is why he's been able to land on these guys with such precision precision and power which ends up putting them on their butt he is somebody that we still need to keep our eyes on considering how much skill that he brings to the table and the fact that he is only about to turn 31 and could be coming into his prime uh, very soon his opponent this weekend Urush Medic is coming off of a knockout victory over Omar Morales but it's been a long time since we've seen him inside the cage that knockout victory came in May of 2022 but he was scheduled for a fight in October and unfortunately had to pull out due to a hand injury. He even uh, posted a video of him injuring his hand, but has said that it's been a constant uh, injury he's dealt with throughout his career. Not a good look if you're somebody, especially that relies on getting the finish as much as he does. 
He is a guy, in my opinion, that I've considered a glass cannon. He came from the Alaska FC scene, made his way into the UFC through the Contender Series, but I think the Jalen Turner fight showed us what this guy's ceiling actually is. Again, he's picked up a couple of decent wins over Alan Cruz and Omar Morales, but I think once he fights guys that are not going to shy away from his power and have good power of their own, they'll be able to put Medich on their butt and possibly get him out of there as well. But he's making good improvements over there at MMA Kings in California. I'll give him credit on that, but I just wonder how far he can take it considering the easy road that he had to make it to the UFC in the first place. Like I was alluding to earlier, I think that Medich is a bit of a glass cannon and we're fully going to find that out this weekend against Semmelsberger. Semmelsberger, a guy who has more knockdowns than he has fights, will go out there, land that big punch on Medich and he'll put him down. Will Medich be able to recover from that? I don't think so. I think he's going to be struggling with the hand injury that he still has. Com- well, I don't know if he still completely has it coming into this matchup, but I still feel it's going to rear its ugly head once again. I fully believe that the forward pressure and aggressive movement and power punching style of Samuelsberger will be too much for Medich here, and I think that will allow him to get the win. I don't think Medich has a good enough grappling game to take advantage of that aspect of Samuelsberger's flaws, but I still think that Samuelsberger will continue to move forward and eventually land that big punch to knock him out here. Fight doesn't go to decision is another great way of playing this fight, in my opinion, but I still think it's going to be Samuelsberger who ends up getting his hand raised by knockout. Next up in the flyweight division, we got 11-4-1 CJ Vergara going up against 14-5 Vinicius Salvador. Starting off on the CJ Vergara side, who's exchanged wins and losses since making his UFC debut, currently coming off of a victory over Daniel Lacerda in an absolutely hellacious fight that night in San Antonio, the home state of Mr. CJ Vergara, he withstood two knockdowns in that first round and managed to storm back in the second round to finally get a finish of his own. We know what Daniel Lacerda's game is, though. He's very much a firecracker in the opening round, but manages to fall off in cardio and in and effectiveness uh, once the fight reaches that fourth or fifth minute. And that's exactly what, what, what Vergara was able to take advantage of. In my opinion, Vergara is still a very, you know, mediocre fighter at best. He's a Muay Thai striker that likes to utilize his striking to break his opponents. And he also has some decent takedowns that he's been implementing as well. But I just don't know if it's going to be to the level that will get him further in the UFC. He likes to bite down on his mouthpiece and throw with some big power. And he throws in combinations as well. But I think the biggest and best part of his game is his durability, is his heart, and his grit. And it's very difficult to get a guy like that out of there. But he's been showcasing solid skills through his first couple fights. We'll see if how long he can keep that going. His opponent this weekend, Vinicius Salvador, has been compared to a very poor man's Anderson Silva throughout his regional run. If you watch his tape, and even if you don't understand Portuguese, you'll be able to hear the commentators more often than not say or the name Anderson Silva because of the way that Salvador fights. He's very you know, entertaining, loves, loves to play to the crowd and taunt his opponent, and he throws very you know, unique and unorthodox strikes. Even in his last fight against uh, Victor Altamirano, we saw him within his first five or six strikes of the fight throw like a, a, a backwards kick to the calf or kick to the shin. It was a very weird strike that he threw. Not very effective, but something very flashy that the crowd was able to uh, provide him with some oohs and ahs. 
He's a striker that likes to keep his opponent backing up and he throws big shots using combinations and ending off with kicks. I'd say the downfall in his game or the flaw in his game would be his grappling. Uh, he's been, you know, his loss against Victor Altamirano, I think that was decided because of a couple of takedowns. You know, even though Salvador was able to work back to his feet, it just ate up too much time on the clock and he was unable to do much damage in return to nullify the takedowns and work that Altamirano was doing from that top position. If he's able to shore that up, this 27-year-old could be a very fun addition to the flyweight division if he is, like I said, showing up that takedown defense and able to go off on his uh, striking and make it more effective by being more precise and more... Um, efficient you know learning from a guy like Michel Pereira who was very uh, flashy and playing to the crowd earlier in his career now we got Pereira you know fighting later on in this card in a very big spot Salvador could find himself in a similar path as well if he's able to round out the rest of his game I was kind of surprised to see Vinicius Salvador as the underdog in this fight I get it Vergara has shown great durability and an ability to battle back from adversity and still get his hand raised but Salvador is a very crafty striker that I think that Vergara is going to have troubles getting a beat on him. I think, uh, you know, I don't think Vergara's grappling game is good enough to the point that he can ground out Salvador and, you know, get a bunch of control time and do some good damage from on top. I think he could land some takedowns, but I don't think it's going to be to the point that it can be as effective as Altamirano was against Salvador. I think on the feet, Salvador will have a way easier time hitting Vergara than he had against Altamirano, which will allow him to accrue a bunch of damage and potentially even find a knockout in this fight. But I'm actually going to take him to win by decision. I think it's going to be the output and the volume and then the constant, you know, eating up of clock from Vergara, whether it's in the clinch or with takedowns, that's probably going to cause this fight to go to a decision. But I think it's going to be the damage and the more effective shots from Salvador, which will make the judges score it in his favor. So give me Vinicius Salvador to pull off the upside here early in this card, and I think he gets it done by decision. Heading back to the welterweights, we got 18-6 Jake Matthews going up against 12-5-1 Darius Flowers. Starting off on the Jake Matthews side of things, he's coming off a loss to Matt Semmelsberger, uh, who actually fights uh, a couple fights before this, uh, in a fight that he got knocked down in the first two rounds, but managed to battle back in the third, but it was too little too late for him that night. We thought we got a completely different Jake Matthews, especially after his knockout victory over Andre Fialio in a fight that he found himself to be the underdog. And it's funny how the betting public and the odds makers completely flip on a guy after one performance. He was the underdog going into the Fialio fight, and then he comes in as nearly a minus 250 favorite against Matthew Semmelsberger and ends up coming short that night. He's a guy that's pretty much grown up in the UFC, almost about to turn 29, but he's been in the UFC since he was 20 years old. He's very much rounded out his game, originally known as a grappler. He's been improving his striking, but seems to need to hone in the the uh, the defensive aspects of his striking game if he wants to make it to the next level. He's still a very strong and capable fighter and a respectable record at 18-6 and six, considering the majority of those coming in the UFC cage. He's a guy that can still go out there and go on a run and tap into even more potential considering that he's only 28 years old. Look for him to continue to improve his striking, but also look to get back to his grappling game to try to take advantage of some of his opponent's weaknesses in upcoming matchups. His opponent this weekend, Darius Flowers, makes his UFC debut after earning his contract on the Contender Series last season by finishing his opponent via slam. His opponent actually ended up injuring his shoulder during that slam and quickly tapped out after that to nurse that injury. 
Darius Flowers, in my opinion, you know, I get it. The guy's riding in adrenaline high and, you know, very happy that he was able to get the win that night. But I always find it very weird when guys are super happy about winning a fight by injury. You know, I get it. The slam caused the injury, but still that fight, uh, very, very much of it was still to play out. And he was still able to go out there and get get his hand raised is what it is. He's a mainly a BJJ guy, and I'm sure that jiu-jitsu tattoo on his chest would let you know that, but he likes to implement some power striking into his game as well, and he has a decent wrestling game as well. He trains out of Iowa, out of a little-known gym, and I'm surprised to see him get a shot on the contender series to begin with before he fought Gogoladze. You know, he was losing against guys that were mediocre prospects on the regional scene, but managed to put together a three-fight winning streak to earn his shot on the contender series. He made good on it, but we'll see if this 28-year-old has what it takes to compete against some of the UFC-level talent, especially considering that they're putting him up right away against a guy like Jake Matthews, who has been around the, the scene for as long as he has. I feel like this is a good bounce back spot for Jake Matthews, but I still feel like there's a little bit of unknown about how good Darius Flowers can actually be and how he matches up stylistically against Matthews. You know, he has good power, he has good wrestling, and he has some decent jujitsu, but I feel like Matthews can overcome that if he's just a little bit, you know, a little bit more strict in terms of his striking defense and then can open up takedown opportunities for himself where he can do some good work from on top. I'd be surprised if the black belt in Matthews was able to succumb to what Darius Flowers brings to the table in terms of his jiu-jitsu which is why I like Matthews here I just don't feel so hot in terms of playing his heavy chalk in the spot I think he wins he has way more experience against higher level of competition just got to be a little bit cautious in terms of how he tries to rebound from such a loss that he took to uh, Matt Summelsberger but I'm gonna take Jake Matthews here and I think and I think he wins uh, via decision Next up in the middleweight division, we got 10-2 Roman Kopilov going up against 11-3 Claudio Hibero. Starting off on the Kopilov side of things, who's riding a two-fight winning streak after losing his first two fights inside the octagon. He came up short against guys like Carl Roberson and Albert Durayev, but managed to knock out both Alessio Di Carico and Punahole... Punahele Soriano, sorry about that butchering right there, but uh, knocked out Soriano after dealing with his power punching approach early in that fight. Kopilov was able to finish him in the second round with beautiful kicks to the body that softened up Soriano, and then he was able to let go on a barrage of strikes that forced the referee to step in. That is Kopilov's game. He's a very talented striker, very precise with his strikes and throws and combinations. I love his ability to work to the body, which usually brings his opponent's guard down so that he can go back up and remind them, hey, don't forget about guarding your head. That's Kopilov's game, and at 32, it seems like he's finally coming into his own. The one red flag that I have in his game is, is it seems like he has a bit of a cardio issue, even though he's been able to finish his last two opponents in the second and third rounds. I feel like a better opponent will be able to take advantage of that, but we'll see how long he can keep this run going with the skill set that he currently has. I hope we see a little bit better of uh, gas tank management from him, as well as a better cardio game so that we can see him you know, get into the rankings and showcase that skill set against higher levels of competition. His opponent this weekend, Claudio Hibero, picked up his first UFC win earlier this year when he knocked out Joseph Holmes. That was a beautiful fight where he was able to stop the grapple-heavy approach of Holmes and then eventually make him pay for it and knock him out. Abdul Razak Al-Hassan tried taking down Hibero as well earlier this year, but was unsuccessful in doing so, but was successful with going back to his power-punching approach early in that second round, knocking out Hibero. Hibero is a poor man's Michel Pereira. 
The guy's very flashy, has a ton of power, but if he's unable to get you out of there early, usually he goes on to lose the rest of the fight. Yes, you might see a round five finish on his record against a guy named Albuquerque, but look into that Albuquerque guy. The guy was in his 40s when he took that fight, and it's clear why Hibero ended up winning it. But I think Hibero, if he's matched up against other power strikers that can put on a show for the fans, that's how he'll find longevity inside the UFC with his entertaining style. But if he hopes on cracking the rankings or trying to make a run to the title, I just don't know if he can do that with his current skill set. We saw Kopilov deal with the big punching power of Puna Soriano last time around, which makes me think he could probably do the same thing here against Hibero. Obviously, Hibero a little bit more, you know, unorthodox with how he likes to implement his power compared to Puno, who just crashes the pocket with his big overhand rights and just tries to knock his opponents out like that. But if Kopilov can maintain his distance, utilize his kicks up the middle to keep his opponent at distance, and chip away at the cardio of Hibero, I fully expect Kopilov to take over in deep waters and possibly find another late finish in the spot. Hibero, again, I don't think he's that great of a fighter. I think he's just more entertaining. Like I said, a poor man's Michel Pereira. And I think unless he's able to get an early stoppage here, I fully expect the overall striking game of Kopilov to come through and for him to go out there and find that finish. Give me Kopilov probably by round two TKO. The Black Beast is back. We got 26-11 Derek Lewis taking on 21-8-1 Marcos Rogerio de Lima. Starting off on the Derek Lewis side of things, who's on a three-fight losing streak as of right now. He's one and four over his last five fights. It's been very painful to see, especially as a Derek Lewis fan. We know, though, his style is very power-heavy, and it's reliant on him going out there and getting that early stoppage. If he's unable to do so, more than likely, his more talented counterpart will be able to evade the big strikes, put him through the ringer, or even knock him out. We saw Tai Tuivasa and Sergei Pavlovich put him out pretty easily. And then we saw Sergei Spivak take him to the ground and find that submission to get him out of there. They did great jobs in terms of anticipating the big strikes that were coming their way and then just getting off on their own strikes there as well. At 38 years old, it seems like Derek Lewis has finally started to slow down. It seems like his Cinderella run of finding these big knockouts over some of these higher level opponents is starting to come to an end. I believe he's just content to go out there and, you know, even in a loss, pick up the check that comes with any appearance that he has in the octagon. I'm pretty certain he gets a minimum of six figures whenever he steps inside the cage, so I don't think he cares whether he wins or loses at this point in his career. His opponent this weekend, Marcos Hargirio de Lima, is on the opposite side of the spectrum, even though he's also 38. He's a guy that's really started to come into his own. He's 4-1 over his last five fights, and most recently coming off of a decision victory over Waldo Cortez Acosta, who was previously undefeated. Rio de Lima is a you know power striker in his own right. He has some big leg kicks as well. He likes to imply, uh, implement, sorry, but also takes a grapple-heavy approach when he sees that he has an advantage there. He's very tough to deal with from that top position for a lot of opponents, especially when he's able to get their weight on him, get into that you know half guard side control position and hold him down. Even if he doesn't do much damage from there, he's staying busy enough that the referee doesn't often stand them up. Again, he is very reliant on that big power early, but if he sees that it's not going to come to fruition, he'll rely on his takedowns and try to grind his opponents out. There was a time where I would believe in the knockout power of Derek Lewis enough to think that he could defeat guys like Tai Tuivasa and Sergey Pavlovich. That time is no more. I think that this is a good matchup for DeLima to go out there and put together his big punches 
as well as his big leg kicks that could slow down Derek Lewis and potentially even open up takedown opportunities for DeLima to smash him from that top position. I think it would benefit DeLima to get an early stoppage in this matchup rather than trying to play with, you know, fire and take this fight into deep waters because we know that Lewis can still muster up, you know, those blitzes and those power attacks that he has late in fights that catch opponents off guard, notably Alexander Volkov, and potentially get a knockout finish late. But I think that we'll see DeLima be very aggressive early and see that how successful other power punchers have been if they just stand their ground and just put as much effort as possible into their power punches early. Find that chin of Derek Lewis and put him away. I'm going to lean on DeLima in this matchup. Under two and a half, probably my favorite spot. But I think it's going to be DeLima who ends up getting his hand raised by knockout early. Next up in the welterweight division, we got 14-0 Gabriel Bonfin going up against 16-4 Trevin Giles. Bonfin, in my opinion, or Gabriel, I should start off with, especially with the comment I'm about to make, is a better Bonfin brother, in my opinion. We saw Ismael Bonfim fall victim to Benoit Saint-Denis a couple weeks ago. But Gabriel this weekend is going to go out there and try to defend the family's honor once again and try to increase his undefeated record to 15-0. At 25 years old, this fighter seems very complete from the striking to the grappling. It's funny that he's known to be a submission artist, especially with the amount of submissions he has on his record, but he is very slick and smooth in his striking combinations as well. He throws good combinations and ends off with leg kicks often, and it usually draws out a desperation takedown from his opponents where he's able to snatch onto their neck or snatch onto a submission of some sort and take that on home with him. He's very tough to deal with, especially when he gets that top position, considering how crafty he is with his jiu-jitsu and how often he's able to finish it off. I'm very excited about the uh, activity level of Bonfine and how often he's been getting in the cage, as well as the potential that he brings to the table. This might be the next new big Brazilian star if he can continue his winning streak, especially in such emphatic fashion. His opponent this weekend, Trevin Giles, is finally on a two-fight winning streak since dropping down to the welterweight division. He started off his trek in the welterweight division with a loss to Michael Morales, but managed to pick up two decision victories against Luis Cosi and Preston Parsons. The Parsons fight was very close back and forth, but he was the one that was able to dig a little bit deeper in that final round, get a reversal, and spend some crucial moments in top position to finally get that decision victory. I still have question marks about this 30-year-old at this division, as I really am questioning his durability level, his cardio level, and if he can deal with the the onslaught and the resistance of higher level of opponents. He's still very skilled and has a good amount of experience under his belt, especially at that middleweight division. I just don't know if it's going to fully translate to the welterweight division the way that he hopes. Although Trevin Giles will have an experience advantage in this matchup against higher levels of competition, I think he's going to struggle against the overall game of Bonfim. I think Bonfim is the better striker here, although I think I'll give Giles the edge in terms of having a better jab and being more consistent with it. But if Bonfim can put that pressure on him, utilize his overall striking game, good combinations, he might be able to hurt him badly and possibly get another club and sub finish. I think Bonfim is the truth. I think Bonfim is the future, and I think he's worth the chalk this weekend, even against an experienced guy like Giles. Look for Giles' durability issues to showcase themselves once again, and Bonfim to get another finish, probably in the second round of this fight. Next up in the welterweight division, we got 16-6 Michael Chiesa going up against 24-9 Kevin Holland. 
Starting off on the Kiesa side, who's on a bit of a rough run right now on a 0-2 run over his last two fights. This 35-year-old got outgrappled by Sean Brady last time around, even after having a very solid third round. It was just too little too late for him at that point. The fight prior to that, he was having some decent grappling success against Vicente Luque until he landed himself in a dark choke and got choked out. But I think people are overlooking how talented Kiesa actually is considering the way that he was han- able to handle guys like Neil Magny and Rafael Dos Anjos in the past. He's an excellent grappler and jiu-jitsu player, especially when he's able to get that top position. His control is very difficult to deal with, uh, and he does a great job in terms of establishing dominant positions, especially when he can complete successful takedowns. His striking game still needs a little bit of work, but he makes do with what he's got. He's very long and lanky for this welterweight division, which is crazy considering that he used to be a lightweight way back in the day. But I think he settled into the welterweight division and he knows he's probably on the tail end of his career at this point in time, but at 35 years old can still go out there and provide a legit resistance for ranked opponents. His opponent this weekend is just that and Kevin Holland, who's coming off of a knockout victory against Santiago Ponzinibbio in a fight where he clearly went into the fight with an injured hand. It didn't stop him from defeating Ponzinibbio that night as he had very solid first two rounds before he ended up finding the knockout in the third. He lost his two prior fights there, and you can't really blame him for losing that fight to Hamza Shmaev, especially considering how short notice of a matchup that actually was. In his next matchup, you can fully blame him and his illogical fight IQ concerning he decided to go out there and strike with a guy like Wonderboy Thompson. It wasn't until the third or fourth round where he finally decided to go for takedowns, but by then it was too little too late, and his takedowns were very telegraphed, and Thompson was able to get out of the way. Holland is a talented striker in his own right. He's very stinging and uh, has a good sniper-like, uh, you know, attitude about him with how he uses his range and picks apart opponent picks apart opponents from outside. But I think there still should be question marks about his grappling game, considering the run that he had back at middleweight when guys were able to just take him down and grind him out. I don't think he's really faced many grappling threats other than Shamayev since then, and I think that that could possibly still be a red flag in his game if there's any fight where he can prove that wrong it could be this one this weekend let's see if he's up to task my eyes lit up when i saw michael kiesa as the underdog in this matchup and that's because of the grappling issues we could potentially still see from the kevin holland side yes he's been working on his takedown defense and working on his get-ups but michael kiesa is very difficult to deal with when he gets that top position he's going to be at a striking disadvantage here but as long as his durability is still up to snuff he should be able to close the pocket or close the distance effectively, crash the pocket, get this fight to the ground, and do what he does best from that top position. I think he could even open up a potential submission opportunity for himself, but I think that would give Kevin Holland the benefit of the doubt here that he's been working on his defenses so that Kiesa is just forced to control him and more often not than try to actually finish him. So I'm gonna go with Kiesa here again. This will be the fight where we see whether Kevin Holland has made the necessary improvements in his grappling defense to determine if he can break through to the next level. I don't think so. I think Kiesa is still good enough to put him through the ringer and the grinder on the mat where he'll be able to get a solid amount of control time, good amount of damage, and then eventually the judges nod. Give me Michael Kiesa to pull off the upside here by decision. Next up in the lightweight division, we got 25 and 8 Tony Ferguson going up against 29, 14 and 1 Bobby Green. Starting off on the Ferguson side of things, who's on a five fight losing streak. It's insane considering the 12 fight winning streak he had before that Justin Gaethje fight. 
The guy was unstoppable, especially with how aggressive and savage he was in terms of putting pain and aggression on his opponents. He was always moving forward, throwing elbows and unorthodox strikes. And then when fights would get to the ground, he was very difficult to deal with with the unorthodox and aggressive nature of his jiu-jitsu game. However, it seems like age and that durability is finally starting to come to uh, a head here, especially with the way that opponents have been able to finish him over his last five fights. Justin Gaethje was able to batter him over five rounds and finally finish him in the fifth, while Charles Oliveira and Benio Darius were able to smother him for over 15 minutes while Ferguson tried getting some sort of jiu-jitsu going off of his back. He had some solid striking success against Michael Chandler in the first round of their fight until he ultimately got caught with a beautiful head kick up the middle from Chandler that knocked him out cold. He followed that up with a very short notice fight against Nate Diaz back in, I believe it was September, where he came in on short notice and had some good success with his leg kicks, but it was ultimately Nate Diaz's boxing that pulled out a desperation takedown from Nate Diaz or from Ferguson and got him tapped out. It's safe to say that Ferguson should decide on hanging it up, especially at this stage in his career, but we'll see maybe if a loss this weekend urges him in that direction. His opponent this weekend, Bobby Green, was on a two-fight losing streak going into his fight earlier this year against Jared Gordon. He had a solid performance up until he inadvertently headbutted Jared Gordon, which knocked out Gordon and then resulted in a no contest that night. At 36 years old, Bobby Green is also a fighter that's probably looking closer to the end of his career, but has showcased that he can go out there and give us the classic Bobby Green performance that we're used to seeing hands down you know kind of taunting his opponent in terms of throwing so that he can counter with bigger shots in return he's not normally a finisher as he's i believe in the last like five or six years his only finish was over ally quinta who was uh pretty much you know one foot out the door and pretty much a salesman at that point and i believe he ended up retiring after that fight as well bobby green is a pressure fighter in terms of throwing big uh um, big amount of uh, volume and combinations but again not much of a, a finisher uh, I, I like his style he's very entertaining even though he doesn't get finishes but he really needs a finish this weekend uh, or at least a, a win this weekend if he hopes on saving his UFC career I'd kind of be surprised if the UFC does end up cutting him if he loses this weekend but uh, he's a fan favorite he's a guy that people love to watch fight and uh, you know he can't be on a three-fight losing streak that's just a no-no at this level in the UFC. It's very tough to muster up confidence in backing a guy like Tony Ferguson at this stage in his career. Being 39 years old and being on a five-fight losing streak and not really winning much of those matchups either other than the leg kicks against Diaz and that early knockdown against Michael Chandler just doesn't give you much to be confident about. I feel like this is a fight that could play out similarly to the Nate Diaz fight, but even worse for Tony Ferguson is I think Bobby Green is a much more effective boxer than what Nate Diaz is at at this stage of his career. I think Bobby Green is super pissed off about what happened in his last matchup against Gordon, and we saw how enraged he was in the following interviews that he did after that fight, and I think he's going to go out there and try to take it out on a guy like Tony Ferguson. More often than not, Bobby Green is known as a guy that goes out there and get decision wins. But maybe this extra emphasis on getting a win and snapping his two-fight losing streak, three-fight uh, you know, winless streak as well, might urge him to go out there and be a little bit more assertive and try to get that knockout. I'm still going to lean with him as winning by decision as my final prediction, but I think that we'll see him be a little bit more aggressive than we've seen in the past. 
I hate to do it, hate to pick against a guy like Tony Ferguson, but I think he's just done, should hang it up, and I feel like this is a layup spot for Bobby Green to go out there and get the dub. We are likely in store for a striker's delight in this next welterweight matchup between 17-6-1 Stephen Wonderboy Thompson going up against 28-11 Michel Pereira. Starting off on the Wonderboy Thompson side, he snapped his two-fight losing streak last time around by finishing Kevin Holland in a main event back in December. Wonderboy at 40 years old is obviously coming to the end of his career, but is still capable of going out there and giving us classic Wonderboy performances as long as his opponents are willing to strike with him. His grappling defense has seemed to diminish at this stage of his career, even though he's working with his brother-in-law Chris Weidman, who's a standout wrestler of his own. Thompson is, you know, struggling with keeping fights on the uh, on the feet, especially when he is going up against guys like Bilal Muhammad and Gilbert Burns. But when guys are willing to exchange with him on the feet, like Vicente Luque, Jeff Neal, and Kevin Holland, that's where we'll see Stephen Wonderboy Thompson still still show flashes flashes of his prime. Apologies on the mouthful right there. His opponent this weekend, Michel Pereira, has been very dominant over his last five fights. Currently on a five fight winning streak. Most recently, defeating Santiago Ponzinibbio in a very close fight where he was able to dig deep and have some good success in the latter half of that fight to get his hand raised by decision. Even though he was primarily a finisher before coming to the UFC, he's won his last four fights by a finish, which shows a growth and maturity in his game as well. He's not so reliant on being flashy and entertaining for the crowd as much anymore as he uses his energy reserves way better and is able to go out there and put some good damage on his opponents. Even though it looks like he's still slowing down later in fights, he still does enough to go out there and defeat his opponents over 15 minutes. I like what I see and the growth we're seeing from him. I just wonder at what point he hits his ceiling. We'll find out this weekend. I think Wonderboy was salivating at the chance to finally go out there and fight another striker who's willing to go down there and strike with him. Will Michel Pereira try to implement a grapple-heavy approach? It's possible. He sees how big of an opportunity this is to add a name like Wonderboy to his record, especially the win column, but I feel like he might want to go out there and try to entertain the fans and give us a striking bout as well. Maybe follow along that Kevin Holland fight IQ level, if you know what I'm talking about. But I feel like if this stays a striking battle, that it's going to be very difficult for a guy like Pereira to hit uh, a guy like Wonderboy cleanly. And I think that will allow Wonderboy to do what he does best, counter effectively, effectively, close the distance with speed, agility, and power, and land big shots on Pereira here. There's a possibility that he could find a knockout over a guy in Pereira who gets a little wild at times. But I like Wonderboy here. Do I like playing heavy chalk on him? Probably not. You know, Pereira is a guy that could land some big power. Maybe the durability issues of Thompson starts to show itself at 40 years old as well. But I feel like Wonderboy Thompson, as long as it stays a striking battle, should go out there, outpoint Pereira en route to a decision victory, maybe get a late stoppage as well. Minus 180, a little bit skeptical about it. Give me closer to minus 130, minus 140, and I'd be a little bit happier about taking that juice on Thompson. But Pereira is on a roll, 11 uh, years, the younger as well. Could be breaking through to another level, who knows. Might even grapple as well, which is why I have some reservations about this matchup. But I'm still going to take Wonderboy Thompson to win this fight, and I think he does it by decision. In the co-main event, we have a very pivotal light heavyweight matchup between former champion 29-9-1 Jan Blachowicz as he takes on 7-2 Alex Poatan Pajeda. 
starting off on the Blahovich side, who actually contended for the title back in December against Magomed Ankalaev. But unfortunately, that night, the fight was fought to a draw. And we saw the following month, Glover Teixeira take on Jamal Hill for the vacant light heavyweight title. And we all know what's going on with that, which is why this fight is even more important. But Blahovich is, like I said, former title holder who actually defended his title against the middleweight champion Israel Adesanya when Adesanya wanted to step up a division and try to claim champ champ status. Blahovich pretty much shut him out that night, only giving up one round and even outstriking Adesanya in some of those rounds as well. Blahovich is a very big fighter and even though he's 40 years old, still showcases a lot of big power and that patented Polish power that we've been seeing, but also has a solid grappling game as well where he can utilize his BJJ black belt. He's very strong from that top position when he can secure takedowns, and if his durability continues to hold up, he could still be a very tough threat for a lot of fighters in this light heavyweight division. Like I said, he is welcoming former middleweight champion Alex Pereira to the light heavyweight division, especially considering how much issues and and how tough it was for Pereira to cut down to 185 pounds. I'm sure he's more than happy to finally make his 205 pound debut in the UFC. It was clear when he made it to the UFC. The whole point was to fast-track him to a title shot against Adesanya, which he was able to get to, and we were able to get two solid classic middleweight title fights out of it. But now he has his eyes set on the 205-pound championship, and I'm curious to see if everything will be able to translate to the light heavyweight division. We know about his deathly striking and how significant of a power puncher he is and how easily he can knock opponents out. Let's see if that can translate against bigger and heavier heavy or light heavyweights. I think he has solid skills and he's been getting trained by Glover Teixeira over the past two to three years. So you got to believe he's finally getting ready and, and more than prepared to fight these bigger guys. But let's see if it actually translate for, translates for the 36-year-old this weekend. This one's super tough to have an uber amount of confidence in because of the knockout power of Alex Pereira. But the thing that I kind of lean on here is Blahovich's underrated striking abilities. We saw it on display, uh, display against a guy like Israel Adesanya, where he was able to shut down his technical striking game, land big damage of his own, land some good leg kicks as well, but even his ability to take his opponent to the ground and grind them from that top position. I get it. Pereira has been training with Glover Teixeira, but it's completely different fighting somebody in live time, in live action, and they're going to be looking to take it to the ground and hold you down. I mean, I know Pereira is a big guy, but he hasn't been fighting against guys at the size of Jan Blahovic. Not saying Blahovic is his behemoth at 205, but we saw how good Israel Adesanya's takedown defense looks and his get-ups look at middleweight. He could do nothing at light heavyweight against a guy like Blahovic. So Blahovic can survive the knockout power and find his way into the pocket and try to get this fight to the ground. It looks pretty good. I don't, I'm not sold on the fact that he'll be able to get a submission here. I think it'll more so look like he'll be grinding him out and eventually find a submission late. But I think it's going to be harder for him to secure that position early in this matchup against an Alex Pereira with a lot of his energy reserves still about him. I'm thinking fight doesn't go to decision here more than anything, but I'm going to lean with Blahovic. Again, not a lot of conviction here, but I think his overall game and his comfortability at fighting at 205 pounds will eventually be the difference maker in this spot. Give me Blahovic to pull off the victory here. I'm going to say by submission, late submission over Alex Pereira. 
in the main event for UFC 291. The BMF title will be on the line for the second time in promotional history as Dustin the Diamond Poirier coming in with a 29-7 record takes on Justin Gaethje with a 24-4 record. Starting off on the Poirier side of things, he's coming off a victory over Michael Chandler last time around. It seems like kind of a round robin that the light lightweights are playing at this point in time with McGregor, Chandler, Hooker, Oliveira all fighting each other and just trying to figure out who the best fighter is out of all of those guys so that they can go out there and try to challenge against Islam Mahachev. Poirier at 34 years old has grown up in the UFC and he actually came in on short notice way back in the day I believe at UFC 125 where Josh Grisby was actually supposed to take on Jose Aldo but Aldo pulled out in steps Poirier, Poirier defeats Grisby and then Poirier ends up going out there and having a storied career with the UFC. He uh, captured the interim lightweight title, but obviously was unable to capture the unified, undisputed title after he fell short against Habib Nurmagomedov. Poirier has been a great all-around fighter, especially with the improvements that he made when he joined up with the American top team way back in the day. His jiu-jitsu is high level, but it's really his boxing and his crisp combination striking that has made him so successful. We saw that on full display against guys like Max Holloway and even when he originally fought uh, Justin Gaethje back in 2018. He's still a very solid fighter and we know he gets paid handsomely from the UFC, which is why we don't often see him inside the cage. But when he is in the cage, it's usually a pretty significant fight. His opponent this weekend, Justin Gaethje, has, stay, has stayed a little bit more busy than Dustin Poirier as of late, as Gaethje is now 3-2 and two over his last five fights. That includes his title-losing effort against Khabib Nurmagomedov, but he bounced back with a hellacious fight against Michael Chandler. He got another shot against the t- or for the championship against Charles Oliveira two fights ago, but eventually got club and sub that night. But Gaethje showcased last time around earlier this year against Rafael Fiziev that he is more than capable of going out there and competing with these young up-and-comers. We saw Fiziev go into that fight as a minus 250 favorite, but Justin Gaethje was able to batter him with leg kicks and punches and beat him down the stretch that night. Gaethje is a hellacious striker, a very aggressive striker who likes to utilize his heavy leg kicks to immobilize his opponents or slow them down, and then start to get big punches off afterwards, showcasing his knockout power. I'm curious about his own durability issues, as he has been a guy that has sustained so much damage over his 28-fight career that at 34 years old, it could start to catch up to him. But as long as he can keep his aggressiveness, move forward, use his leg kicks, and put the pressure on his opponents, he's always going to be a difficult out for most fighters. This fight should be just as entertaining as the last one in terms of when they fought back in 2018. Justin Gaethje had a lot of success in that fight with his leg kicks, and it seemed to really hurt Poirier, but Poirier was able to utilize his hands and eventually find the big shot to put Justin Gaethje out. But I think that we're going to see Poirier kind of stick to that game plan once again. I think we'll see him utilize his hands, utilize his striking, maybe even try to mix in a couple takedowns, even though he went 0-4 in the first matchup. I feel like his precision striking and combinations will hurt Justin Gaethje eventually and eventually put him away. Fight doesn't go to decision is going to be the spot that I lean into most for this fight. I feel like there is going to be violence. Again, the way these guys match up, they're always looking to inflict damage. And I feel like they both have enough power to eventually put each other out. I lean Dustin Poirier. I lean fight doesn't go to decision, like I said, as my favorite prediction for this matchup. Give me Poirier by knockout, probably once again in the fourth 
possibly even fifth round of this fight. And that's a wrap on all the breakdowns for UFC 291. Remember, we got segments dropping throughout the week as well. Tomorrow, I got the lock of the night. Top three candidates dropping for you guys. Wednesday, I got the dog of the night. Top three candidates dropping for you guys. Thursday, lucky two-step. Let's see if we can keep that run going. And then Friday, we got the three best prop bets. Oh, wait. Wednesday as well, we got Bellator versus Risen 2 predictions dropping for you guys in the form of the MMA Lawcast. Only five fights, but I'll break them down thoroughly for you guys. So make sure you guys check that out as well. And if you're looking to do your own research, check out the MMA Fight Archive. Link in the description below for seven-day free trial. Trust me, you'll see why 45 other people have already signed up for this thing and have stayed on board to uh, keep going with it. Appreciate every single one of you guys. The views I get back up there. I love every single one of you. Let's keep this roll running. Drop a comment. Drop a like. Drop a subscribe if you haven't already. I'll see you guys tomorrow again for the top three lock of the night candidates. Peace.